Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. It's a big day today, second day of the World Outlook Conference. And if you haven't been able to join us, then don't worry. It's going to be available on video. I'll put it up on mikesmoneytalks.ca. Man, there's a lot going on there. Uh, really fascinating. And today, though, I'm going to bring you Lobo Tigra, the due diligence guy, talking about two specific items. One is gold and one is uranium. He's been on top of both. I think you're going to enjoy the interview. I've also got Ozzy on the resurgence in the retail slash commercial real estate market. That's going to be something. Uh, I've got Victor Dare talking, boy, the year, or the, sorry, the week end when we saw, man, there was a lot going on because we got the GDP numbers. We had another Fed statement coming out. All of that you got to keep appraised of. And also, by the way, I've got a shocking stat, which is a great example of the kind of information you probably don't look at, but it could have a phenomenally profound impact on us. I'll share with that coming up. But first, I got to tell you this. I got a bone to pick with myself. You know, last week we were discussing the various actions taken by the federal government to address the housing shortage, especially the newly announced cap for temporary student visas, which, by the way, members of their own government had called a mess. And that's putting it mildly, given the federal government, along with their provincial counterparts, had actually no target or no idea how many temporary visas were actually being issued and how many people arrived. Well, of course, that made it impossible to plan for housing and other infrastructure. I mean, adjectives like incompetent, clueless, and even far more derogatory ones have been used. I mean, after all, how didn't they figure out that an avalanche of newcomers that reached over a million last year, going to do that again and more this year, that they need somewhere to live. Come on, that's more than a head shaker. And of course, not one of the people in charge suffer when they do this kind of stuff. I mean, they can afford that one bedroom in Vancouver that's $2,900 per month rent. No, they can afford that. It's the rest of us who can't. But back to the problem I had with me. In the discussion, I said, given the attention the crisis is now getting, finally receiving, isn't it better late than never? I've seen that sentiment repeated in many places along with lines of government to the rescue. Better late than never. What the fridge was I thinking? There is absolutely no evidence that the government will do anything other than make matters worse. Let me be clear, because I don't think you're going to hear this elsewhere. Not only is the housing crisis caused by government, with all three levels adding to the problem. There's nothing to suggest they could solve it. Come on, adding 10,000 or tens of thousands, rather, of civil servants in the last eight years at the federal level, that's 79,000 people. Millions of words spoken by politicians at all three levels about their deep concern over the lack of affordable rents, affordable housing. Well, things only got worse. Look at the track record on housing and so many other issues. Man, are they going to fix housing the same way they fixed Healthcare, where more money, more bureaucrats and grandstanding politicians at both provincial and federal level added up to an even bigger shortage of family doctors, while we ranked last among developed nations in several different categories, measuring wait times and access to care. And meanwhile, 17,000 people died waiting for care. Are they going to do that for housing? Well, maybe they already have. Instead of better late than never, I think Ronald Reagan's line, of the nine scariest words in the English language, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. You know, fat chance. I mean, there's just so many examples. We we're talking with Ozzy a couple of weeks ago about Burnaby, where we had the Burnaby councillor Pietro Calendino ask why construction for residential projects could come in at about 600 per square foot, civic projects were costing 1,300 per square foot. And keep in mind, we've had all these announcements on housing. Well, housing starts were still down 7% last year. Projects are still getting canceled. It's not better late than never. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done on this, but is government the one to drive it? You know what, when I think about this, that all the photo op announcements, are they gonna change things? No, they're not. And my children, my grandchildren, their friends, their kids, young people everywhere are gonna pay the price. Yes, we do get the government we deserve, but our children and their children didn't. They didn't deserve this. Hey, I'm glad you're with us. There's so much more coming your way again here at the World Outlook Conference. Check it out. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca.
I'm very pleased to welcome back to Money Talks Night Down, Lobo Tigra. You can find him at theindependentspeculator.com. I follow him on Due Diligence Guy. Uh, when I go on to Twitter, which I do all the time, but I mean, I follow him there on a daily basis as he looks at, broadly speaking, well, the overall economy, of course, but also the resource sector. And I'm going to get to this with him in a moment there. But he was one of the lonely voices. And of course, people like confirmation bias. So I loved hearing it from him uh, about uranium. And of course, that's worked out very well. Uh, Lobo, thanks for taking the time. Great to chat with you again. Happy to be back with you, Mike. It's an auspicious time for, I think, both of our favorite yellow metals. Yes, it is. Uh, let me ask, though, first on the big picture. You know, obviously, there's tons of discussion about are we in a recession, not in a recession. I've got a, a heretical question. I say who cares um, in one way? Because, I mean, the, the, the economy is so bifurcated. I could go talk to somebody in one industry, and they sure feel like they've been in a recession. Others, of course, not quite the same. I wouldn't mind being in AI and one of the big tech companies, you know, that kind of thing. And I just think maybe the focus is just a little bit too much. So maybe convince me why I should be more concerned with whether recession or not. Simple answer is, uh, you know, the real world and Wall Street are different things. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a Wall Street truism that the real economy and the stock market are not the same thing. Um, but unfortunately, we don't. <laughs> it's funny. We live in the real world, but we live in a real world that is run by people who basically don't. Yes. Right? Great so point. we have to pay attention to their models, no matter how disconnected they may be from reality, because it's it's not just, you know, Wall Street types and their economic models for these big firms, but it's the Fed and it's you know, futures traders on the comics or LME traders who will make decisions affecting our resource investments, commodities or real money, gold, right, uh, based on this data, which, you know, uh, we, you know, Canadian GDP just turned positive for what you were telling me, you know, wonderful. Yeah. You know, I can say, well, the, the inflation, uh, the inflation number that goes in there makes that a not very reliable number. I think most Austrian oriented economics types would say that GDP is a flawed concept to begin with, but nobody's listening. It's funny. You're, you're saying that, you know, there's this big debate about whether there's a recession or not. I think that says something about the room full of friends we have, because the broader <laughs> world, there's no debate. It's team soft landing one months ago, as far as Wall Street's concerned. And now mm -hmm. it's the question is, is team no landing right? So sh short version of the answer is, it's fine to have questions about the definitions. And, and you know, your, your question is, a, is an excellent question. Um, but the reality is that the unreality of the decision makers policy bases and what data they use matters to our investment outcomes. It matters mm -hmm. to what the Fed will do to rates, which matters to the dollar, which matters to the price of anything that's priced in dollars. Now, that's a great explanation, though. That, that's exactly why, as you say, it's not reality, but as much as it hits our investment, you know, kind of portfolios. And in looking at that, then looking at 224, um, are you still seeing, you know, because it has been sort of a, a more robust economic, especially in the States, the States has been much stronger than Canada, you know, in the broad economic numbers. Or the rest but, of the world. Yeah, exactly. The rest of the world, too. Um, so what are you looking at interest rate wise? Because that seems to be where really people where the rubber hits the road for people. You know, they sort of go, blah, 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 Mike. What are interest rates going to do? Well, it's it's interesting that we are having this discussion right now on Fed Day because there's a. Um, the, the mainstream view is that the Fed has already come out and said we are at restrictive policy. We're at a sufficiently restrictive policy. That's not my interpretation or the tea leaves of the oracle. That's what the Fed has said. Mm -hmm. So if that's true, that we're at a sufficiently restrictive policy and inflation is going down by their measures, you know, we can say in the real world it's something else, but they look at the CPI and PCE and these numbers are going down. So... If you're already at a sufficiently restrictive interest rate and nominal rates are going down, you have to drop the Fed funds rate to or else you'll be increasingly, you'll be more restrictive. Yes. So there's people saying, well, why bother? The economy's doing fine. There's no need or this is just normal. It's not historically high. That's all true. But the Fed has said that we're at sufficiently restrictive. So by, by the way they work, it makes sense for them to cut rates this year. I think that's why there are already three um, cuts in the dot plot. 
And I think that's why the markets are expecting even more because they think the Fed has won. They think that um, inflation is going away and therefore the Fed should cut rates. Now you asked about my outlook. I'm you know, a bit of a heretic on mainstream, or you could say maybe not so out in the woods amongst our audiences. But my view is is not objectively, Mike, I was wrong when I said that the recession would become undeniable in the United States by the end of last year, 2023. That didn't become undeniable. We can argue that it actually happened, right? The role yes. recession, earnings recession, freight recessions, all these other things. But it was not undeniable. We didn't have GDP prints negative that, you know, be hard for the powers that be to ignore. So I'm, my view right now is doubling down. I think that's where we go this year. I think it slid. We had labor hoarding post-pandemic. We had a number of other factors, uh, including wealth factor, including NVIDIA going nuts and all this other stuff that staved off the apparent, uh, the, you know, the acceptance or the capitulation, as I would put it, of the recession deniers. Uh, and either I'm right or I'm wrong about this, Mike. Either, you know, my view has been that even if it's normal to have a five plus or minus percent interest rate, uh, going there from zero, it's just not conceivable to me, inconceivable to get yes. there without breaking something. You get my reference. Yes. Uh, right? Without breaking something more. And it's funny that as we're speaking, uh, we have another mid sized bank in trouble today the one that happens to have bought one of the previously troubled mid-sized bank. And, you know, we've been told everything's fine, everything's contained. Well, suddenly just happens to be, as you and I are speaking, that maybe it's not so contained. Now, it's just one bank. I don't want to say this is it. You know, this is... Yes. Sir. Mm-hmm. But it's the kind of thing you would look for if the Fed is, in fact, in the process of breaking something else with its high rates. So either I'm wrong, Mike, and Team Soft Landing is right, or I'm right, we're going to see much more breakage, you know, the signs of the labor market turning and softening we're also getting today. All this data actually, I think, supports my view. Okay, it's taken longer than I thought, but you know what? Even now, here we are in January, we're still not even to the midpoint of where you would expect long and variable lags to kick in. We're we're a little bit ahead of that. So it's way premature for people to say, oh, if it hasn't happened by now, there isn't going to be a recession. And I think the data points to it's coming it's been longer than I thought, but I think it's happening. But here, let's get back. And I'll, I promise I'll let you ask another question. But getting back to your original, we're like, who cares? Um, you know what? If team soft landing really is right, a soft landing is still a recession. And the mainstream view is still actually for a recession of some sort this year. Just it won't be so bad. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Recessions are good for gold. And um, not so good for other metals and things that I might be interested in, in speculating on. But to our point earlier, uh, uranium, I think, is if not recession proof, it's certainly very recession resistant. And um, unlike copper or other industrial minerals or oil, even uranium is not beating a hasty retreat. It's doing quite well. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll come back to that in just a second, but I was just thinking of all the layoffs we're hearing about UPS, of course, 12,000, but PayPal, and there's another list. There's a list of these sort of prominent companies laying down. I don't, I doubt any one of those people who are getting laid off care whether it's called a recession or not. They know what it is. You know, the old Ronald Reagan line, it's a, a depression, you know, it's a recession when your neighbor loses a job. It's a depression when you do. So uh, they're there. But back to your point about gold, because you, you jumped the gun on me because I was literally going to talk about that with you. And I know you've done the research on it. Uh, a bit of a surprise for people that gold performs well in recessions. Well, as a safe haven asset, it shouldn't be too much of a surprise. I mm-hmm. think the surprise is for people who are a little myopic about rate hikes and rate cuts. And there's that old trite thing about gold doesn't pay interest, right? So when the Fed is raising rates, uh, you know, that should be bad for gold. And when it's cutting rates, that should be good for gold. Where actually frequently we find quite the opposite. I, I most notably in 2004, 2005 was the first time where I really saw that idea smacked upside the head of increasing rates. And that was well for gold because the macro setting was constructive for gold. It was a, the reason for the increases, you know, we can argue about them now, but it was not a, a safe world where you didn't need safe haven assets. And if we look around the world today, you know, we've got two hot wars, either one of which could literally become World War Three. <laughs> you know, this this is not an environment where people are willing to just look at interest rates or the Fed and say, oh, well, you know, I, I don't I don't need any safe havens. Everything's fine in the U.S. economy. 
the world is bigger than that. And then we've got a much larger variable here, which is a real game changer in this space. Do you remember the central bank gold agreement back in the day where they agreed not to sell more than 400 tons or whatever it was a year? You know, the big worry was central banks selling too much gold. And of course, they didn't care about us gold bugs. They Their deal was between them because they didn't want to have anybody selling too much and depressing the price before they could sell. So it was a, it was a, a gen, a, you know, a, an agreement amongst thieves, as it were, gentlemen thieves, if you want to be that kind, that we're going to be restrained in our selling so we can all get good exit prices. This is before the famous brown mm-hmm. bottom. Um, but... So that was the context before. Now the context is net, net, central banks are buyers. And when it happened, I, I'm, I can't claim that I'm the one who identified this, certainly not the only one who put my claw on this. But when the U.S. weaponized the dollar, right, the response to Russia's second invasion of Ukraine and kicking Russia out of the SWIFT system, seizing U.S. reserves, you know, that was a big wake-up call to central banks all around the world. And it's not just access of evil countries that are doing this. It's, a, it's basically anybody except the U.S. as close as allies is buying gold. And I don't see that going away. That This is a one-way street. You, you, you tell the world that your dollar reserves are not safe and that you may be kicked out of the club. You may not be able to transact through New York. Well, it's only prudent. It's not, you know, it's not dictators only. It's only prudent to say, you know what? We need a plan B. So I don't, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, Mike, but, but yes, I'm very bullish on gold this year. And maybe the most important thing to me is, and this is going to sound a bit hypey and promotional, which I hate, but, but the fact is we're going into a scenario that looks bullish for gold from a plus or minus $2,000 base. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the last time we saw something like this, we were going into it from a $1,400, $1,500 base and what happened? So I don't even want to talk about what the numbers of what the gold dollar exchange yep. ratio might reach because it'll sound like hype and nonsense. But, you know, just a 10% rise from where we are puts us, you know, well above, you know, not just above, but well above previous nominal all-time highs, which would ge- generate. I saw, I think it was a JP Morgan forecast for gold at the end of 2023, not mine, JP Morgan, or it was some big Wall Street bank. And their forecast was for $2,300 gold. That's not that far from where we are now. It's not, it's not like this huge outlandish forecast. And this is a mainstream institution. But just think of the headlines, Mike. If we get anywhere near there, you know, what is that going to do to awareness? And then again, in the context of all the macro, the geopolitical, the Fed pivoting, right? Um, you know, I, I, this is almost me pounding the table, Mike. I, I would not want to be short gold or gold stocks going into this year. Let's talk about the gold stocks for a second. As you say, the, the gold price performance, and again, when you start using other metrics about like compared to the dollar, compared to this, you know, it's done well. It's done solid. Maybe not appeasing the people who are super keen. You know, why aren't we at fifty thousand dollar gold? And I and I'm with you. If we're measuring in paper currencies, uh, you know, anything goes at that point, given how fast they're producing them to support deficits and all that stuff. But I'm wondering about the lack of. Uh, and I think I'm saying this from a, is it an opportunity point of view? Yes. Uh, junior golds yes. haven't jumped on board. Uh, but but at not least just the juniors. You look at the, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Look at the hooey. Yeah. And it's, you know, the gold stocks on average are still on sale. You yeah. look at the juniors even more so. Absolutely. And it, the, my favorite thing is like, forget the in nominal terms. If you look at them priced in gold, which is really the most important comparison, that's what they produce after all. So yeah. A, gold is real money. So that's a, a reasonable basis. But B, you know, if they're producing gold and, and some high quality companies are trading at or near like all time lows <laughs> in terms of, you know, real money and gold, you know, that I that's to my mind, that is a screaming opportunity. This is yeah. why I mentioned, you know, this is the equivalent of a little bit pounding the table. I'm, I'm quite excited about this. It was kind of like the other yellow metal, if we had spoken a year ago. Before the big ramp up, it it just seemed like it was a trade whose time has come. People hated the uranium stocks because there had been a big spike in 2021 and it wasn't doing anything. You know, the memes on the Internet, you know, the the troll with the stick, you know, come on, uranium, do something. Right. Yeah. You know, people hated it. The stocks were on sale. But, you know, the demand was coming. The long term contracts were in. Japan was restarting. Spot had hoovered up all the cheap pounds. 
it was it was a kind of a no brainer. You know, nothing is certain in speculation, Mike. But that was as close to a, a sure thing as I could see in in resources, and the stocks were on sale. And boy, has that worked out well for my clients and probably yours as well. Yeah. So I feel that way about gold this year. And it's not that I don't love uranium anymore, but the stocks, at least the better ones, are no longer on sale the way they were before. Whereas gold stocks, on average, and even some quality company, you know, multi-million ounce discoveries in the ground with positive feasibility studies, even some of these are on sale. So for a, for a stock picker here, you know, you don't you don't want Moose Pasture Inc. that that doesn't respond to the price of gold at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it, a little bit of due diligence here, I think, goes a long way. And I think, you know, I, I may be wrong, but I'm putting my own money where my mouth is here, Mike. I am deploying larger amounts in um, any of them that got away from me. I'm looking to maybe average down on some. I am putting more money into gold stocks right now. Uh, let me come back to uranium because, uh, as I said, I'm going back a bit. You were right on top of that market. Obviously, it worked out, uh, continues. As you say, you look at the fundamental story about increasing, you know, uh, reactor building and, and permits coming out and the demand's going to be there. Lots of lots of that story. Then you get to the point where you go, oh, my gosh, this thing's up 100 percent or this stock's up this. What do you think about that window now? You know, I mean, have we fully priced? Is there too much hype? As you said, you walk in a room now, people are talking uranium. Yeah. You know, uh, that's never that's never a good sign for bargain hunters. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yes and no. And, and you know, some of the better stocks in this space, at least the ones that are most immediately poised to deliver value for shareholders, have hit 52-week highs or multi-year highs. And you know, I, nobody threw any rotten tomatoes at me at the Vancouver Resource Conference when I said this, but it's probably because people didn't bring any. Um, but I told people, I said, don't chase stocks at 52-week highs. I mean, I, I, I love the uranium thesis. I am a multi-year, multi-decade bull on uranium. But it just doesn't, you know, this isn't just me. Like any yeah. tried and true investor would tell you, you don't buy th- something that's just gone like this. The idea is buy low, sell high, not buy high and hope to heck to sell higher. That's not mm-hmm. the formula. But, you know, so saying this is not being, you know, a heretic, I hope, or it shouldn't be anti-uranium. He lacks conviction. That's, that's not the point. The point is be a little bit reasonable. And the underlying commodity had just gone. As, as I took stage on the uranium panel at the Vancouver conference, uranium had just gone like this to 106 and change. And I said, look for a pullback. And they all booed and hissed and they moved away from me on the group W bench there. I was all by myself on one side. I love that you get my references. Um, So I'm sitting there on the group W bench saying, look, I'm not a bear, but it makes sense after it goes vertical to look for a little bit of a pullback. If I wanted to buy, I'd look for a pullback. And and lo and behold, as you and I are recording, it's pulled back to a hundred bucks. Now that's not a big retreat, but it's the biggest retreat in a year. And you know, and it, it shows the point. Nothing goes vertical forever. So A, I see it as a healthy thing. And yes, I see it as a buying opportunity. If I had no uranium stocks at all right now, I would look at the current retreat to see, you know, who's dipped. Who are the obvious winners who I can get for less than a 52-week or multi-year high, right? That would be, you know, I would want at least a, an initial finger in the pie here. Because while, you know, experience, prudence, history suggests that you know, this is nothing in terms of a correction. There should be more correction and consolidation, which would be healthy for uranium. There's also some real sort of flavor of the day mojo going here, Mike, where uh, just today, as, as you and I are recording, there's a news that Biden is is pushing for one and a half billion dollars just for one single old nuclear power plant to bring it back online. And this isn't, you know, research for advanced nuclear or the next generation. This is old tech, right? Yeah. And what this tells me is that the powers that be, even left of center, like watermelons, whatever name you want to throw at them, right? Even these people are realizing whether you agree with their climate change agenda or not, they're not going to make it without nuclear. Like people are getting the light bulb has gone off. Even even as our friend Rick Rule likes to say, that great nuclear physicist Greta Thunberg has you know chastised Germany for shutting down its nuclear power plants. Right in that kind of world, where Biden of all people is pushing billions to a utility to 
<laughs> to keep an, an old, you know, you know, decades old nuclear power plant going, that is a completely different world from where we were just a few years ago. So we've had the fundamentals on our side, which I'm sure your audience is aware of for a long time. The mine supply hasn't been there for years. There was secondary supply that was that was swamping the market after Fukushima. But now with Japan doing its U-turn, that's gone, you know, against spots, the Sprott Trust hoovering up the cheap pounds on the spot market. You know, it's a very different place. So we've got the fundamentals. We've got the technicals. You know, even uh, the Uranium Insider, he, he uses TI, but also a more agnostic technical analyst like Gareth Soloway is very bullish on uranium. He loves that chart. So you got the fundamentals. That's me. I'm the fundamentalist. You got the technicals. And now we've got the storium, right? The narrative is getting really strong. And if this turns into a genuine flavor of the day, again, I, I don't want to get too hyperbolic here, but this is a tiny market. Uranium yeah. is a tiny, tiny market. The entire market is, is like, you know, smaller than a mid cap, one single mid cap on, you know, one Wall Street company or something. So it brings to mind my, my mentor, Doug Casey's old thing about, the, you know, the contents of the Hoover Dam trying to fit through a garden hose. This is that kind of market. Okay, I, I, I'm a gold bug. I love gold, but that's not quite the, the garden hose Hoover Dam scenario. Uranium is. So if this becomes a politically correct, anointed, you know, green energy flavor of the day, and suddenly people realize that, you know, holy cow, there's not enough of this stuff, and the demand is going through the rough, there's not enough stuff. You know, even, even Wall Street bets could try to put the squeeze on here. We'll see what happens. So again, I don't want to make any price predictions. And actually, my outlook for the near term is history, prudence, a sober view would be more correction in the near term is likely. And should we be so lucky, you know, I think that's a screaming buying opportunity. If I was new, I'd want to go in big on that. As a person who's already massively long uranium, I'd love to add to my positions if I can on such a thing. And if it doesn't happen, I'll be very glad that I'm long already. If it doesn't happen and I didn't own any uranium stocks, as I mentioned, I would see the current dip at least get, you know, one little finger in the pie. I wouldn't want to be left behind on this. I don't know what's going to happen, but the potential here, like I'm, we talked about gold. I am very confident that gold ends this year much higher. New nominal all-time highs again. That's an easy bet for me to be willing to put money on. Uranium, we're already above the incentive price, right? You yeah. know, the lower cost uranium miners are already ramping up their production. The lower cost projects are already being built. It's not the same. It's not the same situation. And as I mentioned, the stocks, the better stocks are no longer hated, right? So it's, it's not the hate trade anymore. You know, that's just reality. And that, that makes me cautious. But this potential flavor of the day thing makes me not want to be left behind. So I'm sorry if I sound like I'm sitting on the fence to your audience. I, I'm, I'm giving two different messages, but for two different groups of you, right? If you're long already, Prudence says watch for the correction. If you're completely missed this one and you're kicking yourself for having missed it, then the current retreat, I think, is a good moment to at least get one finger in that pie. Uh, because if it goes, if it does a 2007 style spike, you know, you won't want to miss that. Well, one of the phrases I've used for an age here on, because uh, I think that's how the markets react is uh, the old Hemingway line. He says well, uh, from one of his books, how did you go bankrupt? He said slowly and then all of a sudden. And I do believe that's how the markets and that was my rationale on uranium. Get a position because it's very much tougher to chase, I find, just maybe it's psychological. But the other thing I think you're explaining very well is you have to first decide, are you bullish? And if you are, then pullbacks are an opportunity. Yes. Pullbacks are good news. you know. And uh, obviously, if someone's bearish, you love spikes, so you can unload. But I think that's why it sounds like, I don't think it is really two different messages at all. It doesn't, but it's, okay, who are you? What's your time frame? What position do you already have? Or are you wanting to have all of that? And all you're saying is, you know, if we do get further softness, that may be an opportunity to take initial position. You probably have more room to wait if you've already got a significant position. You can wait and see if the pullback's a little stronger because, you know, so far it's just been a, a little toe out of the water kind of thing. So uh, I, I just think that's great advice. And it's the kind of thing that... Sorry, really one more little caveat to throw in there. Yes, please. I mean, it, it went to 106 and change. It corrected to 100. And it kind of kinked there, right? And it actually, mm -hmm. yesterday, the broker price index was up 25 cents. You know, that's not much on the scale here. 
Yeah. But if the correction was just like, if that was the peak and it was just going to keep sliding down, like it had gone too far, but you know, the, if the incentive price is 70 bucks plus or minus, and it went too far and it was going to correct to that price, I think we would have seen the slide continue. The fact that the price is now for a couple of days kind of kinked and maybe even tipped back upwards again, I'm not saying, I'm not promising it's about to go north again. I'm just presenting you with data. Because if you look, you know, UXC, it's going to trail you a week or something unless you pay them 5,000 bucks. So just letting you know, you know, that slide has stopped for the moment. I don't know if it starts again or if it goes up. But if I own no uranium stocks today, I would want, I would want at least initial stake in one, just at least one. I'd want my finger in that pie in case it does go back up again. Sorry, go ahead. No, what I was going to say is you follow it on the independent speculator, independentspeculator.com. Make sure that people go there. It's a free newsletter too, independentspeculator.com. Or you can follow uh, Lobo at Due Diligence Guy, Due Diligence Guy on Twitter, as I do. Uh, Lobo, thanks so much for taking the time. Great explanation. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen recently declared in her speech at the World Economic Forum that, in quotes, misinformation and disinformation are greater threats to the global business community than war and climate change. Now, by the way, if you're not sure of the difference, they say that misinformation is false information that spread regardless of the intent to mislead, where disinformation, deliberately misleading or biased information, manipulated narrative or facts is propaganda. Both are pinpointed by government as the root cause of pushback against the government agenda on so many fronts, but gained particular prominence during COVID, along with certain aspects of the climate change agenda. In Canada, the EU, it's the rationale for increased government control of social media, resulted in numerous attempts by our federal government to censor content on social media. The EU has now passed the Digital Safety Act where the government can levy significant fines and other punishments for content it deems factually incorrect or that challenges the government prevailing narrative. But you know what? The elephant in the room that they never acknowledge, politicians never acknowledge their, and their supporters or their proponents of censorship, that governments are arguably the biggest purveyors of misinformation and disinformation. And that brings me to the quote of the week. Now, this is taken from a new federal report entitled Countering Disinformation, a Guidebook for Public Servants. And that should be public servants and politicians. But here it is. Listen to this. It states in quotes, providing clear, accurate and timely information is crucial, but it can be especially important in an evolving information environment where policies, procedures or positions may need to change and adapt. This approach can help build trust. So that's what they're talking about. They obviously recognize there's been an erosion of trust. But the report makes the shopping, a shocking recommendation that federal government employees should consider disinf- uh, countering disinformation by telling the whole truth, including, in quotes, acknowledge what you don't know. Well, wow, there's a concept that was completely rejected during COVID, where the goal was to manage the public, not inform us. And to that end, health ministers, health officers, politicians presented information with a level of certainty that was completely unwarranted. We were constantly told to follow the science when there was none. Got a great example earlier this month. Dr. Anthony Fauci acknowledged that that six-foot distancing rule was simply, these are his words, plucked out of thin air. No scientific backing, no research, and it cost businesses billions of dollars to comply with the restrictions. And there's other examples, but the point of the report is to point out that the cost of not doing that is to erode public trust. And that's the bottom line. It's, it's fascinating to see, though, that their advice, and you'd think it was a given, was acknowledge what you don't know and tell the whole truth. You know, sometimes the job's pretty easy because you're going to have things like the Bank of Canada meeting and telling us how uh, their, their prospects are going in the gross domestic product of our economy. The U.S. meets, they tell us about their interest rates. Obviously, you've got to talk about that. That's why I'm pl- uh, pleased to have Rob Levy join me here. 
Rob, I want to start with the U.S. I mean, Canada's GDP fine, I yawned. You know, it's a little stronger than it was, which was, you know, different news. We'll see if it gets revised, all of those kind of things. But I guess the consensus is put a little damper on any talk of lower rates. You go to the States, I think it's a bigger problem down there. I mean, their economy is showing a strength, I think, that has surprised a heck of a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. It's, you know, continuing to outperform. It's thrown a little bit of a crux into the debate of how things evolve here in this, you know, out of the pandemic return to normalcy environment. It makes things a little more challenging. The one comment, though, I can't leave alone when you talk about Canada, it's easy to be a little bit better when you set the bar very, very low. So yeah. I, that's all I think we are north of the border. But, you know, south of the border, it, that's the conundrum is you got unemployment under 4% still off record lows and yes. an economy there that's by, really driven by the consumer. Yeah. And that's something that we've been chatting about, you know, here on Money Talks is that I don't see the rationale for lowering rates is instant. Now, I've got a lot of really fine analysts talking about, we'll just wait a little bit, that kind of thing. But still the point is they're really walking that typeline, uh, typewriter rather. They don't want people to all of a sudden think they're getting accommodative, which might spur the very inflation they've been fighting. It, it, exactly right. And, and the tightrope, I think it, that analogy nails it because the, the question that, that almost uh, posed to Powell this week in the Fed's announcement on Wednesday is how do you have a return to normalcy uh, without being too accommodative in this economic environment, because if you're accommodative, you know, how does that risk then even further spurring consumer demand and making that even more resilient American consumer and make things just a little bit more inflationary again? Uh, so it, it very much, it, it, it's a challenge that is posed to them. And, you know, when many people were talking, the, the path to lower rates through 2024, and could it be a boost for the equity markets? I, I think we've gotten our first indication that it's not just going to be a, a straight line one way or another, there's going to be a bit of a rocky road to get there. Yeah, and I'll throw in a couple of things that are on the other side saying, why aren't you lowering? You got UPS dropping, what it was, at 12,000 jobs, but also in their report, they're really talking about a slowdown in, in kind of their business, which is, of course, a pretty good indicator of what's going on internally in the economy. So you've got that, you've got other companies, you've got whatever the regional bank was, you know, I mean, there's something every week, but, you know, uh, taking a real hit. So there are certainly very big negatives within that economy. And that's what some people are arguing is you're not getting it. You know, we do need that help. Don't wait too long. So that's why, I mean, we're back to that old phrase, Rob, data dependent, but it, it, it's playing an important part if you're looking at interest rates. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, Powell back in December at the end of last year, who was noted for saying that if we wait for inflation to get all the way to 2% before we start lowering rates, we're going to be too late, meaning the Fed has to be forward looking. But then he comes out at this meeting in the beginning of January where everyone's got their eye on March where the Fed might act. And he tells people very almost as clear as he can that March might not be a live meeting anymore. So it's this continued back and forth and how to interpret a U.S. economy that's driven by a strong consumer. Yet you do hear isolated stories, whether it's the good sector, transportation sector, uh, areas that are impacted and, you know, from restrictive interest rates that are causing a bit of a struggle for the economy. And it's just it's that head scratcher. What does the path to lower, lower rates look like? I want to come back to Canada just to finish here, because it's a huge myth that I see out there. When we get a, a GDP number, the overall measure of the economy number, like we were up, uh, what, plus 0.2%, but it was up. You know, September, we're contracting, so we're up 0.2%, December estimating 03 People mistake what that is. That's the overall economy. And I tell you what, you bring in hundreds of thousands of people, your economy overall is going to be better. That's why they look at economic output per person, you know, your share of the pie per person. And uh, we're still declining there, as you started off with. I just want to emphasize, it's a GDP per capita recession we're experiencing. But I see that confusion all the time. Exactly right, Mike. And it was the Canadian numbers that came out this week, as you said. So we got the, the strong number for the month of November above expectations. But you look back at the Canadian economy across the course of 2023, 2023 the middle two quarters are for about the middle yep. half of the year. The economy didn't grow, it flatlined. And so we had a little bit of a positive surprise at the end of the year. But as you said, too, where was the strength? And a lot of it was wholesale and transportation and linked to that resilient U.S. consumer. It's not necessarily yeah. a strong domestic Canadian economy where we at home are doing well. And then, as you said, so on the high side, maybe we have 1% uh, economic growth in Canada, but you've had inflation, uh, population growth over the past year of 3%. So 
you know, the yeah. per capita story, it, it doesn't paint a very optimistic picture in the near term. And, and it's one that sort of poses many challenges uh, for the growth picture here at home. Yeah, it's got to be in the focus. That's my big message to people. It's got it's not been in the focus for a number of years. It's not been a priority. It's got to start being because the consequences are going to be felt. Rob, thanks for taking the time. Uh, look forward to, and by the way, thanks for being at the Outlook Conference, your presentation and everything. So we'll chat later. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Nice to be with you. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. First, some context. You know, one of the big themes we have here in Money Talks and at the World Outlook Conference has been the escalating geopolitical conflicts and the potential impact on us personally. I mean, I talked about it last night at the conference with Martin Armstrong. See, my impression is that the risks are significantly underappreciated, but the impact could be huge. And my shocking stat offers a great example. Let's see if I can explain this. The Egyptian pound is in free fall. It's fallen, what, I think 24% against the U.S. dollar in January alone. Now think about that. In the last two years, Egypt has officially devaluated, devalued its currency three times. The official rate is now 30 Egyptian pounds to buy $1. Used to be 1 to 15. But that's not even close to the story today. The unofficial black market rate, I think they call that now as the alternative market, is 72 Egyptian pounds to the dollar, which is a direct result of the disruptions in trade through the Suez Canal and what some analysts are calling the collapse of the Egyptian economy. I talk a lot about the declining confidence in government being the key, especially when it comes to the purchasing power of a currency. Well, this is another fine example. As confidence declines, it pushes the cost of goods and services much higher because the purchasing power of the currency is declining. The point is that if you want civil arrest or a collapsing economy and a sharply falling currency, pushing the prices of all imports and commodities hires is a good way to do it. But why is this important? Because I'll tell you, continued and intensified disruption of the flow of goods and energy products through the Suez Canal would be massive. I mean, we already felt the impact on prices of the supply shortages during COVID. Well, this would be far greater. It's already happening right now. There's already been a huge drop-off in the amount of goods and energy flowing through the Suez Canal. But I'll tell you, if this continues, you're going to see intensified political and social instability. That's why the escalating global conflicts are also a big problem, because they're a threat to the free flow of goods. I mean, we're seeing it in the Red Sea, of course, with the Houthi attacks. But Egypt is in an even more precarious position. You got conflicts happening in all its borders, the war in the war in the west, in Libya, in the south, there's war in Sudan, the Red Sea, of course, and then there's context with the war in Gaza. So my point is this the threats to the Suez Canal from wars surrounding it and increasing instability on the inside. That could be a problem for all of us. Obviously already a major problem for the people of Egypt. And that's why I follow these kind of escalating political tensions and conflicts. Hey, just a reminder, by the way, uh, if you're not with us at the World Outlook Conference, you can still get the video for the World Outlook Conference. We'll be having it up immediately. Just check it out at mikesmoneytalks.ca. We're getting there all together, uh, That uh, depending on when you're listening to this. But we'll have it ready for you probably by Monday. So take advantage of that. I'm going to dip into the bullpen right now because we got Ozzy Jurek on deck at the World Outlook Conference. Ozzy, busy, busy week for you with so much happening. I wanted to talk something, though, and I think I've teased I was going to talk about it, and then we never got to it because there's so much stuff happening. Just talking about the other side, which is retail, which is office buildings, which is, you know, all of that kind of aspect of the real estate market that I'm reading in headlines. Maybe give me an update on what you say is happening there. Well, the interesting thing is that Collier's Canada just came out with a report on retail, and it sort of raises your eyebrows because we have the impression that retail is, is tough and things are not, people are not surviving. And then I went to a UDI meeting last week, and there everybody is talking retail is not just back, it's strong in suburbs. And the only difference is that developers say now you have to, if you go and build an apartment building or a high rise anywhere in the suburbs, you gotta have a retail component. You gotta have amenity center because people will actually stay in the suburbs. So imagine this, Mike Collier says that the average vacancy rate decreased from already only one and a half percent 
to 0.7% since last summer. And they said, that's leaving hopeful tenants hard pressed to find a suitable option. Wow, that is a different story than we're hearing in many parts of North America, especially in the States, though, a very different story uh, in there. Uh, the other thing, though, that that's positive, and I'm just thinking to those GDP numbers we got on Wednesday, um, you know, showing uh, strength in that November, December period. For, so we'll have an overall growth in the fourth quarter. Uh, that sort of supports that uh, thesis, because up to that point, as you know, we'd had, I think, 12 out of 13 months of sort of zero to down. Yeah, no question about it. The other thing that was surprising to me, that actually Vancouver is no slouch either. The average vacancy rate in the high traffic areas such Robson Street and Yaletown and Kitsilano is, is around 3.9% compared to last June. Uh, it's about the same. It hasn't hasn't moved at all. So remember, these are where you, you know, you spend $1,000 on a, on a shirt, you know, crazy yeah. areas. So they're doing quite well. And now the other thing is, uh, it's not just retail. If office slowly is starting to wake up as well. And of course, that's been one of the big shifts we've seen, of course, working from home. That's hardly a shock, but that'd be very interesting. I still am interested how that will play out eventually. I've been hearing more reports of uh, certain offices and businesses sort of demanding back to the office kind of scenario. I forget, I heard somebody on the news this past week saying that we're expecting five days a week now, you know, from the sort of two days and three days, that kind of thing. So I'm wondering if that is a shift because that's one of the big things commercially is people looking at what the future of offices are. Well, you're quite right. I mean, people got used to working from home. I'm, I'm an old manager and an old general manager of large groups of people and I want my people in the office you know I mean I don't uh, people don't do what you expect them to do they do what you inspect with respect particularly if you have a sales force or marketing teams it's different for the computer and accounting guys but what has seemed to be happening is that Friday is becoming the work from home day so we're working Monday till Thursday and everybody has to be there you know you get killed if you don't show up but Friday is now the work from home day. Now, if that was me wearing my old manager's hat, I would make it Wednesday because Friday, I mean, maybe turn into a long weekend, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, that, that would be the first thing that would occur to me. You know, but the other thing that's interesting on a pushback very quickly here, the pushback, though, being is if there are labor shortages in certain areas, uh, that gives the worker more power. And they say, well, I'll work for you, but I'm doing it from home. You know, at times uh, the the overall business doesn't have much control. So it's a really fascinating dynamic that's going on socially and in business. And then you have Elon Musk saying he, he had 8,000 people inherited at Twitter. He brought them down to 1,900 and he wants them in the office. And he says it's a moral issue. You're a bus mm. driver. No matter what job you do, you have to go to work. But you get to stay home. It's an oddball take, but it's an interesting take. Yeah, interesting times. Ozzy, I'm going to let you go. You're busy, busy, busy guy. I got thousands of people waiting to hear what Ozzy Juris got to say at the World Outlook Conference. So there we go. And of course, people can get, if they're not at the conference, they can get a copy of the video. We'll put it up on mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca, where you can order your copy of the video and catch Ozzy live right there. Ozzy, have a terrific day. We appreciate it very much taking the time. Thanks, Mike. And remember, government's view of the economy can be summed up in a few short phrases. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. And if it stops moving, subsidize it. <laughs> there we go. Ozzy Jurek, Ozbuzz.ca. Let's go live to the trading desk. Uh, Victor Dare joins me. Vic, you had a great day yesterday on Friday, kicking off the World Outlook Conference. And uh, nice to see such large crowds there. And I know they were surrounding you at one point. But uh, obviously, because there's so much to talk about. I mean, uh, while I was busy X, Y, and Z, you know, you start looking at uh, the choppiness in the market. And all of a sudden, Qatar reports that there may be a peace agreement. We need details, of course, and all that. But that news came across the newswire on Thursday. Yeah, coming into this week, the market was prepared for some volatility. We had several things that say top of the list. We had had American military personnel killed in uh, Jordan, yeah. and there was an expectation that America was going to uh, respond. Yeah. But, the, but the possibility of the conflict in the Middle East widening. So there was that at the, on that level. The Treasury was scheduled to come out and say, here's how much money we're going to borrow in the next quarter and how we're going to distribute it up and down the curve. And, you know, that was so key because in November, 
when they came out with their uh, quarterly refunding announcement, it actually ignited a two-month rally in the bond market. So all of a sudden, everybody's focused on that number. We had an FOMC meeting that was coming up. You know, this is, again, scheduled. We had critical employment data this week. And uh, then, of course, we had a couple of surprises, like you were just saying, the the Catter announcement of a possible ceasefire. And was it uh, Wednesday? I mean, I'm getting mixed up. I think that was when we had a a regional bank in New York had a shocking report. You know, their their stock dropped uh, 40 percent, a 24 year low in their share price. And it got the market worried once again that the commercial real estate market is going to hit these regional banks throughout the United States. Yeah, it's a hell of a list. Maybe the top of the list is I pronounced the the country Qatar correctly. So that may be the biggest surprise of the week. But (laughs) let me come back to the regional banking, though, because I think that did take people by surprise. It was sort of a, hey, we thought we were over when First Republic, Silicon Valley, etc. Boy, did that ever bring it back into the limelight that there's you know, it's the old Dennis Gardman, there's never just one cockroach. And maybe it comes against the backdrop of the problems in China. You know, they're not so easily solved on the commercial real estate market, uh, you know, and inside the regional banks. But yeah, I sort of looked at that and it was like a cold shower. Like, whoa, this, this is a problem. Yeah, the stock market certainly didn't like it. As I say, it was an unexpected event. It was coming, you know, at the same time that the Fed chairman turned sort of unexpectedly more hawkish than the, the, the market thought he would be like and took a, like a, an interest rate cut in March right off mm-hmm. the table. And But the market's still pricing virtually 100% chance of a cut come May. But anyway, the, the combination of those two things hit the stock market. The broad indices had just been making you know new all-time highs again, and all of a sudden it's the old one-two punch. So We've had a really choppy week here in the stock market all week long, getting buffeted around by these different pieces of expected and unexpected news. Well, and look at the oil market doing the same kind of thing. I mean, you know, there are some pretty big moves there. I mean, or maybe they're not big moves. I'm only thinking it was big moves before the last couple of years. We would have thought these were huge moves. They're becoming more commonplace now. Oh, absolutely, Mike. I mean, uh, the WTI market opened about $2 higher on Sunday afternoon in anticipation. Oh, here we go. You know, mm-hmm. things are going to ramp up in the Middle East. And then, of course, it, it kind of, not, when nothing happened, the prices dropped and then dropped another 2 bucks. Uh, on this uh, sort of surprise from Catter that there was a, a ceasefire agreed to. And I'm, I'm with you, you know, we'll, we'll sort of believe it when we see it kind of thing. But at least, you know, that was the, that was the headline that rocked the market. And back to the other story, you mentioned, uh, you know, with three U.S. servicemen uh, killed in drone strikes. Now the U.S. says it's approved plans. I, I think it was on Thursday they said that. They've approved plans to launch a series of strikes on the Iranian targets in Syria and Iraq. Well, Boy, that's more escalation there. And uh, even a ceasefire in Gaza doesn't solve that problem. Yeah, well, these problems are all interrelated, of course. You'd imagine Mm -hmm. that if indeed there was a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel, the Americans might back off of their attacks from their like revenge attacks for what happened in Jordan. The Houthis might stop shooting random missiles at ships and, you know, any number of things could happen here. So... The Middle East has been like this ever since yeah. I started trading markets. You know, you just you just don't know, but it, it's it's critical. It's important, so you got to pay attention. Just one quick final question. Okay, so that's the backdrop. You started off by saying, "Look how choppy this stuff is," and you're a professional trader. Does that just get you when their stuff is coming out of left field, like the banking problem came out of left field this week? Obviously, if there is some sort of lasting uh, change in Gaza, that's out of left field. You know, sort of generally. Does that just tell you, hey, I'm going to back off. This is a period right now where there's too many surprises, or do you just have to even tighten your stops and become more disciplined in your entry and exit? Well, given what I knew was scheduled for this week coming into this week, I was pretty lightly positioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'll tell you, I had a small, short position on in the stock market. I'm just, you know, I just can't help myself when the thing, it seems to be running away the upside. Everybody and his dog is in there and it's party, party, party. I want to say sold to you, but still small positions. And, and I, I stayed small all week. And by the way, on my short position, I got bumped out of that before the market did take a good tumble. So, you know, <laughs> one of the things about trading, I think, is you just have to survive. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you can survive, then you got a chance of making money. So you, you got to do what you need to do in terms of managing risk so that you don't get blown away by anything. Yeah. When it's choppy like this, I do kind of remind myself, you know, you don't have to trade every day. You don't have to yeah. trade every week. You can just back away. The market is our good friend Peter Appleby used to say so many times, there's a rumor going around that the markets are going to be open again next week. Yeah, absolutely. But as to surviving, I think that's extended well beyond traders. We got an awful lot of Canadians feeling that exact same way in this environment. Vic, uh, great to see you at the World Outlook Conference. Uh, you know, great to see all the people with us there. So uh, I'll chat to you later today. Uh, we will be talking later today. Yes, yeah. thanks. Cheers. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, the ArriveCan app was a relatively simple government smartphone app that was originally budgeted to cost $80,000 to develop. Well, in fact, it eventually cost us, taxpayers, 675 times more than budgeted. I'm going to repeat that. 675 times more. An app that was supposed to cost $80,000 ended up costing us $54 million. And there are no shortages of questions as to how that happened. But to date, the government's shown very little interest in finding out how. And they've worked hard to make it difficult for other people to. I mean, for example, when Public Works Minister Jean-Yves Duclos appeared before the Government Operations Committee, he refused to give the names of who specifically was in charge of awarding the contract. This is despite he was asked 32 separate times. He refused to answer. Well, that used to be called stonewalling but now it's just called business as usual in Ottawa. I mean, you should note that in 2022, a tech developer duplicated the ArriveCan app from scratch in a matter of hours. A matter of hours, yet taxpayers paid $54 million. I mean, come on, that's got to be some kind of record for a ripoff of Canadian taxpayers. And I must say, though, I always want to acknowledge the millions of partisans who think that's okay. For the record, I don't. I've worked too hard to have my money wasted absconded, or stolen. We should get an answer, by the way, as to which is the better description when, as Blackhawks uh, reports on February 12th, we got the investigation by the Auditor General being released. Meanwhile, an investigation by the RCMP is already underway. We'll see where that leads, but it's noteworthy that as the National Post reported a couple of months ago, Cameron McDonald, he's a former director with the Canadian Border Services Agency, well, he was testifying in front of the Commons Committee he testified that a senior bureaucrat had already lied to the committee about key details of how ArriveCan contracts were awarded. A special note, I'm going to be looking at the $25.3 million contract awarded after a highly suspect tender process to GC Strategies. It's a two-man company operating from a private home in rural Woodland, Ontario. Evidence shows that just even in one aspect of that contract, it was $8.9 million, well, the two-man team got up to 30% in commissions on that contract for doing nothing, $2.7 million in commissions other than assigning all work to subcontractors. Evidence shows that GC Strategies received millions in federal contracts without meeting security requirements or having to outbid competitors. So I want to give you the latest revelation on this week's Goofy. New report by the procurement ombudsman, Alexander Jeglik, raises even more questions. As the National Post notes, 41% of arrived can contracts were not properly advertised before being awarded. Of 41 contracts, 17 were never even posted to open government website as required. I mean, there's just so much wrong with the process here, with the bidding and awarding of contracts. That resulted in roughly, are you ready? 76% of applicable contracts. I mean, they put resources that we're going to use in order to carry this out. 76% in order to win the bid did not, in fact, perform any work on the contracts. As I said, so much wrong. But that's how you get stiff for $54 million in return for an estimated $80,000 or less in work. And the amazing thing, maybe not surprising, but it is amazing. I'm still blown away when the vast majority of Canadians don't seem too vexed by it. Certainly not a word from the self-described progressives. You know, Jean Chrétien made clear long ago with the $3 million Sponsorgate scandal, way too often, this is how tax dollars are managed. 
Hey, that's all the time we have this week. But a reminder that if you go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, you can do two things. One, you can sign up for five minutes with Mike. It's absolutely free. But you can also get a copy of the World Outlook video. We'll get that to you ASAP. You'll have it by the week, early week. And again, just go on mikesmoneytalks.ca. You can sign up. All the details are there to get the video if you weren't able to join us uh, Friday night and, of course, Saturday. In the meantime, I hope you go out and have a terrific week.